hide this speaker behind the cross. That you, Christ, might truly be lifted up. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been talking all fall about getting in the game. It's that kind of season. Uh, And we've been looking at uh, that metaphor as a way to really talk about uh, renewing our commitments and our activity as uh, disciples of, of, of Jesus Christ. But uh, that discipleship is something that we've uh, framed primarily as something that's a relationship. If we really want to be strong in our discipleship, the first step is not to get busy. It's to get connected with our God. And out of relationship to him, that inward journey, let the outward expression of our discipleship take place. Last week we talked about prayers. Prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. Last week we talked about prayers. And our prayer life truly is that way that we stoke ourselves at the fire, at the heart of our God in order to engage the world. Prayer is not a retreat from the world. It's actually the power by which we engage in an active discipleship in the world. And, and this week, we're going to take one step further and look at uh, that membership vow, or I'd really rather call it a discipleship vow, um, of presence. What does it mean uh, to vow ourselves to presence because we are Christ's disciples? Um, there's an inward devotion of growing that inward journey with God and there's an outward action. There's the pledge of our prayers and our presence and then with that pledge within our church we fulfill that pledge corporately to prayer with our corporate worship. We worship regularly. Uh, In order to fulfill that pledge to presence we fellowship faithfully. If you go down the hallway here you'll see these rubrics on the wall you know to to uh, worship regularly, to fellowship faithfully, to give generously, to serve effectively, and to witness fruitfully. Some of you have been paying attention. That's right. There, there's an outward expression of our discipleship, but it's always stoked by the inner fires of our relationship with God himself. So what does it mean then if we, if we pledge ourselves to presence that the outward expression of that pledge to presence shows up as fellowship faithfully. Have you ever felt the power of someone's presence? Uh, it, it really is a, a very, see if I can get my clicker going here, a very powerful thing. Whoop, there it is. You, you probably saw the movie recently, 42. Uh, it was the story that recaptured the historic journey of Jackie Robinson, who was there in the lower picture on the left. And, and beside him there is Pee Wee Reese. I don't know the names of the actors that played him in, in the movie. But there was a moment in 1947 at a game in Cincinnati that has become immortalized. And, and there outside the stadium is, a, is, a, is now a, a statue, an iron statue of the two of them uh, capturing that particular moment. It's captured in the movie above Uh, But there it is by the statue outside. 
the, the wives of Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson were there at the dedication of this. And if you look around the base of that, store, uh, base of that, that pedestal, it tells this story that in 1947, Jackie Robinson was breaking in to what had been a completely, uh, 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 well, well, a racial door had been closed. There had been, baseball had been a white man's sport up until then. That didn't mean that, that black people were not playing baseball. They did. They had their own league. But there was a separate uh, league. Uh, and for the first time, there was the, the breaking of that color bar, as they called it. Jackie Robinson had the courage, despite all the negativity of his day, to step into that world. He knew it was the right thing to do and the just thing to do. But as he became a professional baseball player... Uh, the reaction in some places was celebration, but, but with some others, uh, it was violent in, in its response. Before every one of his games, he would receive in the mail death threats that if he took the field, that, that he would be killed. He had been playing in Brooklyn. It was early in the season, that first season, and their first away game was in Cincinnati. The same kind of death threats came. He took the field, but there, as he warmed up on the uh, inner baseball diamond on the infield, they they uh, were jeering him from the stands, saying things that are not repeatable. Yeah, and the tensions got higher, and the voices got louder, and the captain of the team, Pee Wee Reese, saw the countenance of Jackie Robinson fall. And at that moment, in the midst of all those jeers and all, all, all those, he came over and he stood beside him on the, across the infield. And as the captain just put his arm around Jackie's shoulder, Jackie would later say he didn't talk about much, just small talk. But as they made small talk with his arm around his rookie infielder, he stared up into the, the stands, voice by voice. Face by face, he made contact with those who were jeering and a hush came over that crowd. He finished up his friendly little conversation with Jackie, patted him on the butt with his, with his glove and ran back to second base. And Jackie Robinson has been made to say many things about that moment. One of the things he's been said to have said was that that moment saved his career in baseball. Another was that was the last time I ever felt alone on the field. Presence. Our presence can mean so much. Maybe you've had moments in your life where the whole world seemed to walk out and that that one person walked in. Presence, it can be a very, very powerful thing. It can be powerful just when it's us as fellow human beings commiserating with one another, advocating one another, standing beside one another, having each other's back. But it can be even a more powerful thing as Christians sharing our presence because our presence is not the only presence that shows up with us when we show up. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit lives within us. So our pledge to presence, if, if, if we've been a person that's not just showing up in our own strength, in our own consciousness, in our own awareness, if we've been soaking in the things of God, if we're relating to our God, then all the power of that relationship is within us to share with someone else 
when we show up. What a difference it must have made for, for Barnabas to be there with Saul. When Saul returned from Damascus and went to Jerusalem there to tell the Christians in, in Jerusalem, the, the Christians that he had been locking up and, and beating and discouraging from the faith. He had been a persecutor of the church, but God had knocked him off his horse, literally, and turned him around and filled him with the Holy Spirit. And he's come back to Jerusalem, and the rest of the Christians there don't know what to think. Is he for real, or is this just a ploy to get us out in the open to round up some more of us Christians? Can we trust this guy that just moments ago, weeks ago, was persecuting us to now be... uh, a partner with us in this gospel. And Barnabas had the courage to walk across the infield in Jerusalem and put his arm around Barnabas and say, no, he's one of us. Let me tell you how the Spirit has filled his life. Let me tell you how he's speaking out for the faith. Let me tell you that this one is surely one of us. And he was welcomed into the fellowship in Jerusalem, at least for a while, until he got so run off at the mouth that they had to run him out of town. But, 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 but for there for that moment. What did it mean to Saul to have Barnabas' presence among the other, other disciples? I wonder what it meant to Paul, same guy, but years later, now called Paul, to have Silas at his side as he had been unjustly beaten with rods, an act that would often leave a man for dead, and then jailed. He's, he's been beaten with rods. He's, he, he's horribly beaten up. He's in prison. He's, he's uh, chained in the back of this jail cell. And Silas says, hey, Paul, do you remember my favorite hymn? And Silas starts to sing. And praise starts to overcome the pain. A praise that started to shake that jail and then open those doors and then draw another one into that same net of salvation. I wonder what it meant for Paul to have Silas, his presence with him in that jail. This next scene is painful for me and probably painful for you because it's so wrong. The one who came saying he would never leave us nor forsake us is here forsaken. Is here isolated. Is here left alone. If you've watched that movie, The Passion of the Christ, there's moments where, where that sense of wanting to stand with Jesus is, is, is overwhelming. It's just as powerful when, when a presence is absent sometimes in the negative as it is as, as in the positive... Uh, when the presence is there. This next slide, I, I still don't know what this means. Just look at that for a while. I'm going to let you write your own caption for that one, but that says something about a missing presence to me. Tragic. I, I, I don't know how they took that picture. I'm sure it's been photoshopped, don't you think? Tell me I'm not going crazy here. There, there's, there, there's just something wrong with that. And, and, there, and there's something wrong. We, we sense it in our, in our body. We sense it in our church when we pledge ourselves to presence. But so often in our, in our, in our actual living of it out, may, maybe we're really not there for one another. We can be present. Look at this next picture. We, we, we can be present and still not be present. You know what I mean? 
we, we can be there, but there's only one in that picture that's present. The one that's locking eyes with you. What, what does it mean to be, to pledge our presence? I, I struggle to kind of wrap words around it, and I always find help from the Bible and the words it uses in those cases. There's, there's, there's a word for this kind of fellowship. And, and the Bible calls it quanonia. Can you say that with me? That was pretty good. Let's say it again. Quanonia. That's right. Quanonia. I remember when I was a, a youth director, uh, I almost got kicked out of this camp because I showed up in fatigues. And that was... Uh, not the thing to do there. But, but I showed up in fatigues because really over and over again in Scripture, the body of Christ is referred to as an army. We're referred to as, as fellow soldiers, not because we take life, but because we are willing to fight for things of value. We're willing to lay down our lives and sacrifice. It makes perfect sense to me that, that, that we were the Quaninoi. We even had a rap. We'd walk around camp singing this rap and doing, doing calisthenics and stuff. It was, it was a little militant and crazy. But, but, it was, but I'll never forget it. Quanania. I wish I could remember the rap. I'm not going to do that right now. But anyway, quanania is the word. And most often in the scriptures, it's translated just like it says there, fellowship. Fellowship. But, but especially within the church, I think fellowship needs a revarnishing of what that means. That, that's, that's a kind of pale, lifeless, baloney-flavored term anymore. Fellowship. You know, we put it in the same class with food and fun. You know, in the church. Food, fun, and fellowship. You know? But, but, but in the Bible, this idea of, of presence, this idea of partnering with one another was strong, strong, stout stuff. It wasn't socializing over ice cream. Hear, hear, hear me. It, 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 had, it had sinew to it. It, it, was, it. it was a powerful commitment of life with life. You are not going to go through this alone. It says in the scriptures that... that uh, the sons of Zebedee with Peter were partners in the fishing business. And that word for partners is this biblical word, quanonia, but it's in the plural form, quanonoi. Quanonoi, it means, it means that, they, that they, were, they were fellows, fellowship. They, they were fellows in the fishing business. They, they were partners. What would that mean? That would mean that they, they shared in the mending of the nets, uh, in the grind of that kind of work. That means that they would share long nights. That means that they would share campfires and they would share the laughter and they would do life with one another. That means from the things that were tedious to the things that were triumph, it was all part of the same life that they were sharing with one another. They would share the catch with one another and the benefits of this life with one another. And it's said of the Christians when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts 2. And again in Acts 4, this word is used repeatedly uh, about their quanonia, their, their fellowship. And, and it is, it's a deeper thing than often we're even comfortable with. You know, not just sharing uh, the word and sharing teaching and all this kind of stuff. But they shared their stuff. That just gives Americans hives. Sharing our stuff so that they had, they had nothing that they called their own, but they shared everything in common. And here's the point, that there was not a one of them in need. What a partnership of life. What a powerful thing. 
So after service, we're all going to put a for sale sign on our cars. No, I'm not, I'm not, not going to freak anybody out here this morning. But what would it mean? What would it mean for us to become similar kind of partners in life with one another? Uh, that, that's a high calling, and I don't want us to, to miss that. If, if we truly pledge ourselves to presence, then we, we will be partners with one another, and in many ways we'll share this life. Now when we say we'll support our church, our discipleship, uh, that outward expression will be lived out in a pledge of presence. We're saying that we're going to be partners with one another. I hope I've redefined that word now. Partners in prayer, partners in worship. Partners in mutual care of one another's partners in mutual growth with one another. Hopefully that's happening, and we've talked about that in our home teams. That's the place where we get close enough to one another, where we turn towards one another enough that we can actually know and be known, serve and be served, love and be loved, where, where our participation can become active with one another. We're partners in giving and partners in serving and partners in witness. All these things are are a matter of our partnership. But where does that partnership come from? I, I, I want to look at a scripture this morning that's full of this word, quanonia. Would you join me in 1 John, the first chapter, the third verse. 1 John, first chapter, third verse. The Apostle John says this, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Did you see fellowship in there twice? The first kind is talked about is, we, 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 we want to proclaim this message to you. We want to tell you what we've experienced because we want you to enjoy this fellowship, first of all, with us. We, we want, to, want to connect you to us. Uh, we want that kind of bond with you, right? But... But where does that bond come from? It comes from, and surely our fellowship is fellowship with the Father. Do you hear the pendulum swing in that? Do you hear the inward journey of fellowship with the Father transforming the way now we can relate to one another? We want, we want you in our fellowship with us, but surely our fellowship is with the Father. Look at verse 4. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That's a verse that I... I have previously just kind of read right past. It sounds like a bunch of Bible stuff. Uh, and, and we want to share this with you to make our joy complete. Now, now, what would you have expected there? That's a good question to ask sometimes in order to see what really is there. We, we want to share our fellowship with you because it's the right thing to do. That's true. We want to share our fellowship with you because it can be a blessing to you. That's true. We, we want to share our fellowship with you because God has commanded us to go into the world and to share this faith with everyone else. That's true. But that's not what he says. He says, we want to share this fellowship with you that our joy may be complete. What's he talking about? This is the opposite of the elder brother in the prodigal son story. This is a person that spent so much time in the heart of the Father, right? 
That he's not upset when someone comes else, someone else comes into the fellowship. He's not upset if someone's getting a party that could just as well have been thrown for him. He, he is joyful over the fact that his brother is coming into this fellowship. Why? <laughs> because he's so close to the father, he knows a party was going to break out. You follow me? There are times when we extend fellowship over and over and over and over and over again to others that never return it to us. And we could get bitter and frustrated with that. Or we could just go to our Father and discover His joy over our willingness to let fellowship be made available to another. And we could do this to make our joy complete. Oh, wow. If, you, you know, if, we, if we really got infected with that stuff, we'd have to lock the doors because we're going to get overwhelmed by the crowd that would show up. The world longs for that kind of fellowship. And so do we. But it's interesting, you know, if, if, you, don't, if you don't have that time with the Father, it's so easy to... For our, our, our fellowship towards our brothers, our willingness to sacrifice, to love, to contribute to them in all those different ways. It's so easy for that to, to, to grow stale and to become anemic, isn't it? I mean, just imagine yourself in one of our home teams. There's about 10 other people in the living room seated around you. And if, if, if you haven't been soaking in the Father and know of His love for everyone else in the room, you could very easily walk into that room and think that the only value of this event is me. And what I get out of it. You follow me? Now if you're sitting with 10 other people. Let's just say for instance. That we could so divvy up the time of listening to one another. That everyone got 10 minutes. Okay? 10 people. That's over an hour and a half time. And at the end of it. Guess how much time was focused on listening to you? 10 minutes. One, One tenth of it. Now what does that mean? That means even for just a fair level of fellowship to be shared. We are nine-tenths of the time contributing with our listening rather than contributing with our words. Do you follow me? If we are not prepared in that fellowship to already come stoked with the Father's love for one another, it can turn sour really fast. Are you with me? Can anybody else admit the humanness of that dynamic? No? Just your pastor. Okay, I'll start. I'll start. God God calls us, though, to have a burning love for one another that's not just about what we get out of it. It's about what He's given into it and what He's worthy. It's about His joy that becomes our joy. Abide in me that my joy may be your joy and your joy may be complete. That's where that joy comes from. Are you with me? So it's a partnership. And in this uh, scripture, it says that it starts with this. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's talking about God's uncompromised holiness. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. That's talking about God's uncompromised virtue. Uh, and, And that makes God a completely different kind of entity than you and me with all of our Mixture, right? In him is light and there there is no darkness at all. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. At the heart of our fellowship with one another is not our feelings for one another. 
our, our, our fleshly affinities for how well we get along. At the heart of our fellowship is what Jesus Christ has done for every single one of us. And what he has done for me, he has done for anyone that I will ever lock eyes with on the face of this planet. And so they are a brother or a sister in potential already for what he has done, not only for me, but for all of us. His cross places a value on every single person I might encounter. Later on, he's going to talk about one of the signs of whether or not you really share this fellowship is whether or not you hate your brother or you love your brother. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But because of what he has done for us, we have reason to place a different kind of value on every person around us. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I wish John backed off on stuff just a little. But he doesn't. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's interesting to me that if, if our fellowship is with the Father, with that Father that is complete light, then His complete light is always showing up the shadows in me, in us. The sin that is not like Him. And, and, and the goal of Christ coming to live in us was to make us like Christ. And so whenever I fellowship with the Father, it's only natural for me to discover things in me that are dissonant with His kind of love for others around me. It, we are not only fellows in joy, we are fellows in fortune. We have received the same gospel. What Christ has done for us is a gift that we have to give and share with one another, regardless of what we have even begun to do in sharing with one another. We are fellow fortunates. It says here we're also fellow sinners. If that makes you uncomfortable, you're going to need to get over it. If, if you can't admit that you are a fellow sinner, not that that completely defines you, but if you can't admit that you have an inclination to selfishness and sin and to put yourself first, if, if, if that's something that you find hard to admit, frankly, you're a dangerous person to be in fellowship with. I wouldn't feel comfortable confessing my sins in front of you. There's something about understanding this gospel and each of our desperate need for it that makes us fellow sinners. And when we become fellow sinners with one another, then each of us becomes a safe place for another imperfect, ordinary person like us to connect. Right? But, but, but if, if, if we see ourselves as so accomplished, as, as so like God, that we have no sin, then we look down on somebody else. And that's just what the people that this book was written to were doing. They were called Gnostics. And they didn't understand the gospel. They thought, the, I don't know if I have time for all, but, but the, the Gnostics basically looked down their noses at others because they were less spiritual than they were. The, the, the Gnostics believed in a 
dichotomous world where things of spirit were good and things of, of materialism and, and flesh were bad. And so the way to really ascend in this kind of understanding of the world was to get so spiritual that earthly things didn't matter to you. And if the earthly things that didn't matter to you were your brothers around you, so be it. If they're a little more rugged or a little more uh, uh, unrefined than you, then, then in order to be really spiritually risen up, you had to put them down. And it had two kinds of effects. One was that that other person didn't matter, so you could treat them like dirt rather than the person that's a treasure that God, by his gospel, has told us that they need to be treated, right? So, so e- either they would be treated like dirt and used... Or since material things didn't matter, the Gnostics went to the other extreme too and said, well, none of that material stuff matters. Have your fun. Have your fun. Just enjoy sin to its fullest because, you know, all that stuff, that's stuff that you're just doing with your body anyway. And that really doesn't matter. Either way, either you're using people or you're distancing yourself from people, both the ways of hating your brother. And John is saying... That if you haven't been infected enough with the gospel to get over your own attitude of, of arrogance or your attitudes that someone else is of less value than you, then that's obviously a sign that you had not really heard the gospel yet. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying we're fellow receivers of the gospel. And now, see, since we're receivers of grace, why can't we admit that we're needers of grace? See? Then it's easy for me to admit, yeah, I, 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 I've got this problem. I've got this place where my life has not matured. I, I've got this besetting sin, and, and, and I need your help to help me through it. So now we become partners in that light, having admitted our our fellow weaknesses to one another, we can now become partners in overcoming them to become more like Christ. Are you with me? I don't know why I'm getting so loud. I'm just kind of excited about this stuff. This stuff will change your life. And this stuff will change a church. We are fellow sinners confessing our sin. We are fellow sinners becoming saints. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Chapter 2, verse 6. It goes on there. We we ought to become partners. Now, saints are not people that are inhuman. Uh, Our Catholic traditions deceive us a little bit here. You've heard of someone being designated a saint because they're so much more morally developed than the rest of us, right? A saint. But would you be surprised to find out that nowhere in the New Testament is that term ever singular? It's always a term for the whole body of Christ that together is being sanctified by this grace that we share in common, helping one another become more like Christ, which is in itself an admission that we're not enough like Christ right now. Right? And, and so we are being called to be partners in each other's sanctification, to edify one another, to pull one another along. Yes. We're not here to embarrass one another or to point out one another's sin. The day that you come up to me and start pointing out my sin, I, I pretty quickly get to the place that I don't think you're a safe person to hang around with anymore. Anybody else feel that way? But all of us, all of us were born this way. 
All of us were born with an inclination to sin. And it's going to manifest itself in a hundred different ways if there's a hundred different people in the room. But if we're people that can hear the gospel and hear that there's a sin to turn away from and a God to turn toward, then let us turn together and let our hands be hand in hand and arm in arm. And when we get tired, we pull others along and and, and we keep renewing ourselves in this commitment to fulfill our pledge in our life in Christ. We're fellow sinners, all of us becoming saints. We ought to be Brothers that can admit, even encourage one another to embrace those places in our life as real that are broken. And trust God together for his transformation and his holiness. The Gnostics couldn't do that. If you really understand who you are in Christ, you always can. How do we know this God? Uh, Too much stuff there. One more concept I want you to hear. And that is this. Throughout this whole passage, though it doesn't mention it by term, we are looking at the priestly ministry of Jesus in this fellowship that we're talking about. It says that we have fellowship with God the Father through Christ his Son. Right? Right? And, and, and Christ is that priest that we can dare to approach God knowing that he's not only cleansed us of our sin and made us right with God, but that he understands our weakness. I heard a story one time. Um, uh, two women were talking and one of them was sharing about, you know, their OBGYN. Is that a guy or is that a girl? And the, the, the gal who had a girl, OB, or lady, G, OBGYN, uh, said, you know, uh, th- there was a difference. She said, I've, I've had a, a male before, and I, I delivered my first child with a male doctor. But the second doctor was not only a female, she was also a mother. And she said, when, when that need for the epidural became so painfully obvious. She said, I could swear that woman moved with more empathetic speed than my male doctor. She said, I might have been just imagining it, but I could look into her eyes and know that she understood my pain. Right? Same expertise. Same doctoring finesse. Right? But it's a whole different thing when someone else understands how you hurt when they're trying to be someone that comes alongside to help heal. I think when it comes to being present to one another, part of that sense that someone is with us is that they're not just with us on our best behavior and at the moments of our best presentation. They're with us. They're a brother or a sister that's going to walk in when the whole world finds it too uncomfortable and decides to walk out. If Christ lives in us, we have a power to fulfill that pledge that others in the world do not have. 
We understand what He has done for us. We understand that His Spirit lives within us. And we essentially become fellow priests with Christ. Because we are a person, even though we're in touch with the Spirit that can transform all of us, He's called the Holy Spirit because that's what the Holy Spirit does, makes us holy, right? We're not only in touch with the Holy Spirit, we're in touch with the human brokenness of what anyone else can be feeling. If we're honest with who we are and from where we've come. You with me? Now, we don't have to be that present. We can walk through all the techniques with all the expertise of any other Christian. But that's not the powerful pledge of presence. And to be honest, that's what I long for church to be. Too many of my experiences through the years in church were such that if, if I had any besetting sin, I better not tell anybody else about it. I would surely get judged for it. Right. What if we became that kind of fellowship that so had each other's back that to learn that one of us had stumbled or one of us was broken or one of us was struggling with something, all that did was fire up the joy in us to be a brother to a brother. What kind of church would that create? I remember when I was in high school, I dared to be honest with a Christian counselor of mine in FCA. And his response, though it was well-meaning, was this. Chris, you're a good Christian. You shouldn't struggle with that. How helpful is that? You know what I mean? Now, he didn't have to have the same struggle I had, but, but he, he couldn't have come alongside at that moment and said, Hey, Chris, we all struggle with something. And I'm going to come alongside you and we're going to struggle with this together. Anything we don't understand, we'll go seeking answers together. But we're going to walk each other through. We don't care what else comes out of the stands. My brother. Have you felt that arm around you before? That is the arm of Christian fellowship. That is quanonia. That changes lives. That changes communities. And those kind of communities can change their world. I'm asking you the next time you fulfill this, this, this pledge of, of presence, if it be when you're serving alongside another brother, you stop to talk a little bit, to, to be not only a person of Christ, but to be a priest of Christ. You know what a priest does? It's very simple. A, a priest is a meeting point, a meeting person. They, they represent God to people, and then they represent people to God. That's a priest. And, and I, I need more than just friends in the Christian community. I need fellow priests. And guess what? That is what the Holy Spirit has made us. 
For you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you knew no mercy, but now you know mercy. You know the gospel. We know the gospel. The, the, the heart behind starting a church with small groups was simply that. That we might discover a level of quantania that goes far deeper than polite conversation. There's a lot of places you can go for polite conversation. When I need someone to get me through, that's not what I need. I need a partner. I need a quantanoi. And if you'll so let this Christ who was our priest, who came as one of us, that we know not only walks with us and renews us and transforms us, but understands how we hurt, understands how we are tempted, because he himself was tempted, though he didn't sin. That is the, that's our connection to God. And that very priesthood, when we wear him within us, helps us to become priests to another. I just saw a movie that was really great this last weekend. Uh, I may have recommended some other movies and maybe you went and saw them and thought, you know, the preacher isn't much of a movie critic. But this one's really good. <laughs> this one's really good. It's called, and just the title is this message, Same Kind of Different as Me. Do you hear that? Yeah. Same Kind of Different as Me. Fellow hearer and heeder of the gospel, fellow sinner becoming saint, fellow same kind of different as me. But that story is a real story that is now a movie because of one little lady who knew how to be a priest. Her name, I think, is Debbie. Miss Debbie, is that right? Is it Miss Debbie? I think it started with a D. Anyway, her, 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 Marriage was in a shambles. Her husband had, had been unfaithful. They decided to recommit to the marriage. And somehow on their way to healing the marriage, she shows up at a uh, shelter in Fort Worth, Texas, where she is feeding homeless people day after day as they come through a, uh, you know, a, a line for, for food. But it would have been one thing if she just showed up that day as a server. Or as a worker, she could have scooped up the same beans, put them on the same plates, scooped up, up the same potatoes, put them on the same plate. She was a faithful servant. But what made her a priest was, as each one of these homeless guys would come through the line, she would give them the plate, and then she'd say, my name's Debbie, what's your name? What's your name? And her husband now, uh, he, he was a millionaire, art dealer. She had asked him to come there. She, he was serving right alongside of her, you know. Why are you, why are you asking their names? Did you, did, who are these people to you? Is the point. Right? And, and the people on the other side of the chow line picked up on that. In fact, one of the homeless guys came through and he said, Hey, buddy, 
You need to quit looking down at us. Don't you realize that you're maybe one paycheck or, or one disaster away from being in this line with us, just like us? Right? People, people can pick up on it. Why, why was she asking their name? Because they mattered, someone said. I've got a name. I know you've got a name. Same kind of different as me. That's presence. And that changed lives. I'll let you go to the movie to hear the story of Denver, the life of the uh, um, former slave, uh, felon, crazy man. They called him suicide. He would grow violent just because the world was around him. And one day he broke up in the, in, in, in the chow line that day, pulled out a baseball bat, just started smashing things all around. Debbie came out from behind the counter and grabbed a little girl that was scared nearby and pulled her back and then looked back at suicide and said, don't you care? She's just a little girl. What are you doing? What are you doing? And he put down the bat and walked out. The next day, he came through the chow line and she asked his name. Well, you just want to know my name. He knew to be suspicious of people like these. Eventually, the, the husband decided to try to befriend him. Go take him a plate. I'm not going to go take him a plate. Go out there and take him a plate. Are you kidding me? He might kill me. He's still got that baseball bat. Go take him a plate. Why would I take him a plate? No, I'm not going to take him a plate. I'm not going to take him a plate. And then, you know... Influence of a wife. He's taking him a plate. He, he, he puts the plate down on the table and kind of takes two steps back. Just in case he threw it, you know. Later on, he's telling this person who's now a person with a name. His name's Denver. That, that, that he'd like to be his friend. Denver tells this story. He says... Uh, he says, you know, when I was growing up, white folk always fish different than black folk. He says, y'all got something y'all do I don't understand. He says, you catch a fish, and then you throws it back. And the fellow he was talking to, yeah, yeah, it's catch and release, catch and release. He said, yeah. He said, when I was a boy, we'd put a trot line out in the river. We'd all, wait all day hoping there's just something would bite on it. We never threw it back. You know why? Because it wasn't just fun. And it wasn't just sport for us. It was life. It was life. So I was asking you. You say you want to be my friend. Is this a catch and release? I'll let you see the movie to see how that turns out. How's it going to turn out with us? Are we satisfied just hoping somebody shows up? Are we satisfied just with a baptism? Are we satisfied with people just coming to Christ? Or is this a catch and release thing? 
Or is this about life? What do people matter to you? When they matter to you like they matter to God, your experience at church is going to become much, much more than merely attending. It's going to become attentive. We've pledged ourselves to presence. We know the way to make that that much more powerful. If that's true this morning, if you long for that kind of fellowship with the Father that manifests itself in this kind of fellowship with one another, we invite you to these altars to receive it. And don't feel like you're separating yourself from us. There's never been a person in this church that has joined the church alone. If you can get to this altar, I guarantee you, you'll have other people standing with you because we are one beggar telling another where we found bread. We don't release. Lord God, help that not just to be our pledge, but to be something that you empower. Help us to be not just a church, but your church. God, we ask that as we press into you and find your heart for ourselves and for others, that you would so transform us that our fellowship would change in how we relate to other people. We wouldn't just serve them. We'd ask their name. We'd value people because the cross tells us how valuable they are. Even as it tells us how valuable we are. So God, we come to you. We come to you for the first time. We come to you for the millionth time. God, we pray that in your embrace, we would be made like you. Thank you for that grand promise. It is the gospel. And we respond to it this morning as we stand and sing. Would you stand? If you want to choose Christ, we invite you to the altar. If not, we'll invite you to hug a neck before you go. There's a brother or sister around you that might need an arm around them today.